Hey, this is Andy from the 4WD Tribe podcast. Join me in this episode as I talk to Bazza from the Timber Creek Police Museum. Bazza's one of those amazingly interesting characters you bump into cruising around in your four-wheel drive. If you're going past Timber Creek, come in and have a chat to Bazza. If you can't make Timber Creek, tune into this episode. It's a crack. I'm lucky enough to be sitting here in Timber Creek. I'm at the uh, the Police Museum, and I'm sitting out the back with the, the curator here, Barry Burrows. And talking to Barry, I thought, wow, what an interesting guy. So I want to get the story of how Barry ended up being the curator of the Timber Creek Police Museum. So, Barry, g'day, mate. How you going? G'day, uh, Andy. How you going? It's um, probably Baz is a better name because I never refer to Barry that much these days. Yeah, right, eh? It, um, mate, well, that's good. Well, tell me, mate. I'm, I'm curious to work out why you're here and how you ended up here, but let's start at the start. Where where were you born? Well, I was born in, uh, in 1941 in uh, Carlton, Victoria, and um, it, uh, it started off from there. I lived in Coburg. And uh, Coburg in those days, right up until about 1947, was pretty wild, wild um, bush country. At the end, I lived near Pentridge, actually, not far away from Pentridge, Merry Creek, and um, there was all sorts of vacant blocks of land and bush. We used to go rabbiting, ferreting, um, and had a great time as a kid, yeah. That was the start of it. So where where'd you enter the workforce? What what was your what was your Well, um I I uh, I was lucky enough to work at the Olympic Games in nineteen fifty six as a uh, glass boy and a, a hot dog seller and I was lucky enough to see old Duke of Edinburgh walk past one day. Um so from then on in nineteen fifty six, fifty seven, I went up to a place called Corop, just uh, uh just south of Achuca. And in those days, there was no electricity up there, and I worked on a mixed farm. I went there for about three years until the credit squeeze in, uh, oh, about 61, I think, and then uh, the bloke I was working for got flooded in the big floods and uh, sort of wasn't doing too good. So I went back to work in the foundry with Dad, and uh, I stayed there in the foundry for 30 years. Yeah, look, you showed me some photos of stuff. What was, what was the foundry manufacturing? Well, we manufactured, we, we worked for Rawlings & Co, which was an agricultural place. They come from Warwick-Nabeel, and uh, it was all agricultural stuff. But uh, then I went off and I was lucky enough, I did very well in the uh, foundry business. And I finished up um, foundry foreman of different places. And then uh, when the, uh, oh, different things come along, um, the clean air and they put a lot of foundries out of business and I went worked for a sales firm, Abel Lemon, worked for them for a couple of years and then I started my own business, manufacturing potbelly stoves and cooking stoves. Yeah, some of the photos you showed me, they look pretty intricate, they were pretty good. Yeah, they were, well it was at the, um, the time of the, uh, the fuel crisis and uh, everybody thought it was magic that um, I'd created this potbelly stove business, but I hadn't, because the, uh, the, all the old potbelly stoves and camp ovens all come out as ballast in sailing ships, 
And I had one woman ask me what ballast was, and I sort of give it an idea that I'd give it away then. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, um, I went for 20 years at that, and uh, I, I manufactured a cooking stove, which was solid fuel electric. It took me a while to get that going um, through regulations and different things. Now it's quite a common thing, but I was probably the first one to do it in, uh, oh, probably late um, 75, 76, somewhere around that. Yeah, right. Eh? What, that, was, what was the brand of stoves, better? That was, um, well, we, we started off as Mont Eltham stoves because I built a house in Eltham. And then uh, when um, I did the cooking stove, we went to a kangaroo stove company. And uh, then I sold that business to Shepparton, Furfies at Shepparton. And they manufactured the next 15 years under licence and uh, I lived on royalties. And I had a great time at that 15 years. <laughs> yeah, so well, there you go. Well, if you've got one of these in your, in your backyard or in your shed, well, now you know who made it. Yeah, they're antique now. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet they're worth a bob. The young brother, he take, he's taken over the business and he runs it down in um, Rosebud. He's uh, not manufacturing that much, but he handles a lot of stuff, yeah. Right, eh? So what happened after that? Well, I, I built a, I had, I bought a factory uh, over in uh, Thomastown. I had a wife and uh, she got used to a lot of money and I couldn't keep up with her. So in 1986, I cracked a trifecta. I got rid of her, the business and the factory. It wasn't a good deal. I should have got rid of the wife and the business and kept the factory. It's worth a lot of money now. <laughs> yeah, mate, we can all look back on things like that. Murder wasn't on my mind at the time. There you go. So, okay, so that's made you pretty much a free man. So what? Uh, where'd the compass take you after that? Well, it did. Um, a little short episode there that um, Furphy, Roger Furphy decided he was going to get uh, his stuff made in China. Um, and then that was in the before 2000 and then uh, he wasn't going to manufacture the cooking stove which was solid fuel electric uh, it was a big stove it weighed about uh, five six hundred weight and they sold for around about seventeen uh, seven thousand dollars at the time um, become a good friend Ted Egan come down and bought one off me one time when I was working up here but anyway um, it then went on and uh, I sort of um, well I've missed a bit there I did, I took off, I went round Australia, got a new vehicle, went off and uh, worked on Victoria River Downs and worked a lot of places, got an idea of what I'd missed out on in my life and uh, then I went back, we'd, we'd manufactured this cooking stove at a farm I bought up in uh, Beveridge and then um, Furfies at Shepparton were doing a lot of work for me in his foundry so he put a proposal to us and he bought the stove business off me or off me and a partner at the time and uh, we kept 10% interest in the business and about 15 years later he decided that um, he was going to get it all made in China and um, he finished up, we bought the stove business back and I started another business up called Ebony Stove Works in uh, Bunanyong near Ballarat in Victoria. Right, so that's after coming up here to work at the at the cattle station. Yeah, yeah I worked up so here for a little while and then um, when uh, they took over um, I sort of wandered again and 
I went round the world, wandered backpacked round the world at 65 and um, was through And then, um, oh, yeah, I just, I love the Northern Territory. So what was your favourite place overseas? Um, probably Alaska. Yeah, right. Only a little bit cold. Uh, Canada was great. America was all right. Um, a lot of the other European countries I wasn't that interested in. But uh, in between that, I joined the Australian Light Horse and uh, I got very involved with horses and um, uh, the uh, First World War. I travelled over to uh, Gallipoli. Um, I've been to Gallipoli about four times now and um, joined the Australian Light Horse and we went over to uh, three episodes at Bathsheba and made documentaries over there and that was um, in 07, 12 and uh, 17 for the 100th. Yeah, right. Okay, so and so the Northern Territory was the, was the draw card. So was this where your interest with the light horse started? Not really. No, um, no it was mainly down south. But um, the interesting part, I love history and that's why I've been involved with museums most of my life. We did a lot of royal shows and different things. Um, we dressed up as old people and showed the young kids how to manufacture candles and make all the old stuff, making fire with steel and flint in the old days. Yeah. This type of this type of thing, like I like, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. Okay. So once you got back, so once you got back to the Northern Territory, what did you start to do then? Well, I came up here to work on the stations again. I had a couple of jobs offered to me and um, I took up one and lasted about, oh, about a season I worked with them. And then I had a job offered to me over in uh, Yakala, over, uh, over Gove. And um, that was the time that Johnny Howard brought the intervention centre in. And that stopped me from going over there because uh, they were making, um, they were selling carver and selling it to Ram and Guinea, Man and Greeter and all those places and then when that stopped that was six million dollars of their business so when the Johnny Howard stopped that um, they went back to government subsidies of two million so they couldn't afford me and the other the other um, mate who was running the outfits so we finished up he uh, he went and uh, relieved on uh, Kintor, Belgo, Kirikara and uh, he did the stores and he always dragged me along to do all the uh, road work or outside work and uh, it was quite interesting some of the places I've been to. How are we getting to Timber Creek? Well, um, I was going over to Man and Greeter to work and then um, they went broke. So I finished up in Pine Creek and I did some volunteer work there for the school and they offered me a job as caretaker. So I said I'd stay there for a little while. I finished up staying six years and then uh, the museum in Pine Creek was the railway museum, the Northern Railway and uh, I run that museum there for oh, about four years and that was another interesting episode of um, the Northern Territory during the war. Yeah, okay. And then from Pine Creek, Timber? Pine Creek, um, well in between that um, I was very interested in the airfields up in uh, during the war like in my uh, other lifetime, I acquired a general aviation license, pilot, 
and I was flying all around the place and then um, when I got up here I found out there was 52 airstrips put in during the war. Yep. So um, I got involved with the boys at Fenton, um, Kamali Creek. Um, it's quite an interesting episode and the war that happened up here. It's interesting, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a big story. Yeah, so then um, I knew this place was uh, needed a bit of attention and uh, Veronica, who runs the um, council down here, she was over at Pine Creek. I knew her, so I finished up coming over here to, to get this set up. I've only been here 12 months. Yeah, but you, you, you seem fairly invested in the history, I've got to tell you, by the, the bit of a tour you gave us. That, um, there's, a, there's a lot about the place here, isn't there? The, the history um, of the, the north with the armed forces and the police. What interested me about the, the Northern Territory was the last frontier and um, the Nakaroos and all the blokes who come up here during the war. There's over 60,000 troops just round Pine Creek yeah. and um, they lived a rough life. Um, I worked on the stations and how the people lived up here in the early days was, was unbelievable. No medical. Uh, you wanted to do anything, you either lived or died. There was no, no halfway about it. Yeah, just when you mention the Nakaroos, because people listen to this from actually all over the world, what uh, what's a Nakaroo? Nakaroo was North Force, what they call North Force now, it was Northern Observer Unit. When the Japanese bombed Darwin, um, a bloke named Stanner and the other bloke, Donald Thompson, he was a archaeologist, an anthropologist, a tremendous book he wrote, and... Um, they, they wanted to form a system behind the lines in case the Japanese came, advanced on, uh, on Australia. And what I've gathered from history and my own assumption is that, um, and I was talking to the fellows that do um, uh, see Darwin tours, they, uh, the bombing of Darwin, and he, he uh, sort of hit on it that Japanese um, printed invasion money. And I asked him, I said, well, if the Japanese were never going to invade Australia, why did they print invasion money? He said, well, plan A was that was they were going to um, invade Australia. But in Pearl Harbor, when they didn't sink the, the uh, American aircraft carriers, they knew they were in trouble. So what they plan B was, as I assume, was to stop the Americans from setting a camp up here in northern Australia, which... Um, they did very well. They, we always thought they bombed Darwin 64 times, but it was 77 times, and they bombed over the area of um, from uh, Western Australia over to uh, Townsville, something like over 150 times. Right. And they bombed uh, Catherine once. Okay. Yeah. So what was the what was the reason for the money? Why were they printing the money? Well, they printed the money because um, if they'd. Have, sunk the aircraft carriers at Pearl Harbor, then the Americans couldn't have couldn't have been as strong as they were. Yeah. But keep it in mind, Andy, we were lucky to win any war, really. The yeah. idiots we had run on the joint. <laughs> there's um there's a book called The Idiot's Guide to the First World War. Is that right? We were lucky to win that. But I've travelled all the islands, um Guadalcanal, uh Honiara, um, Timor and uh New Britain, New Guinea, I've worked a coda track. So um, 
Yeah, the young fellas did very well. I'm a member of the 39th Battalion and 51st or 52nd, and they were young fellas, only 18 to 25. Had a few old fellas who were in the First World War who guided them, and they were our saviour. When uh, they went up to New Guinea to stop the Japanese at Kokoda when they took over Rabaul, and they did a damn good job with what they had was nothing. Yeah. Driven by bloody idiots who, um, Blamey and MacArthur, they were all show ponies. That um, just just back to those Nakaroos. That like there's when you come to Timber Creek, you need to go up and make sure you have a look at the lookout, um, the Ridgetop lookout. There's a there's a great um, Anzac Memorial up there, and I guess is that where you have Anzac Day? Yeah, well we're going up there. I'll um, I uh, I was very interested because. Um, in the early days when the Nakaroos were formed, when Stanner and uh, Donald Thompson started to get organised, they worked in sections of four and one radio men, I believe, and they worked in a 200 mile distance, walking along, uh, working through the bush along the Victoria River from Borroloola right over to Western Australia uh, to see if any Japanese had invaded. None ever did. Although there was um, there was some um, an article on the Long Island massacre, which you can't find any information on, and they did land on Long Island near Mackay. Right. Uh, they landed about 150 commandos, and uh, the Australians had to go in and wipe them out. That was the time of the Coral Sea battle. Right. So, um, but the Nakaroos, <coughs> they uh, they rough mob. They confiscated all the good horses whaler-type horses or good type of horses for this country from all the stations. Kidman was a big supplier of a lot of, sta uh, a lot of horses in the First World War and the horses were still here in the Second World War, running wild. Um, the, uh, there's a, a book called Curtin's Cowboys and it was John Curtin was Prime Minister then and uh, um, they were a rough lot. They used to break the horses in. Um, the terrific stories that they had of um, running horses across rivers, getting eaten by crocodiles. Um, it's quite an interesting story. But the Nakaroos did a damn good job, but never ever seen the action. No, it's, it's some of the photos. Like they were here through the wet and the dry, and back in the day there were no roads. No, yeah, they had to no stay anything. behind the lines if the Japanese come in and keep informed. But if the Japanese ever got here, they'd have died just getting down a. <laughs> yeah, and of course the the police have got a fair history here, and uh, they had a fairly big a fairly big um, area as well, pretty much from from Boralula right over to Timber Creek, didn't they? Well, it was a frontier, and um, when that Buchanan brought the cattle over from uh, Brisbane Way or Rockhampton, I think it was, that um, he brought over the, the twenty thousand head of cattle brought over in thousand lots. And uh, the stock route was about six miles wide, I believe. And they come up through um, Belita, um, through here, through Timber Creek, took the cattle over to the Ord River. And uh, they actually virtually wiped out the Aboriginals as they came through, simply because they took the food, uh, forced the game wider. Then the Aboriginals started to um, take cattle for food and then the cattlemen thought they needed the police here to 
to get rid of the Aboriginals, and that's what they did. It's not a not a good history. Yeah, and there's there's certainly a a bit of a sad tree out the back, isn't there? Well, uh, there was uh, I've I've gathered from the locals who are still here. The Joneses were all black trackers, and um, a lot of the others um, were all related. But um, when the depot was put in, where they brought the ships up from, or the boats up from um, the ocean to the depot to supply all the stations, um, the Aboriginals sort of helped, but the white fella got greedy and uh, needed more room and kept pushing the Aboriginals out. And they did some terrible things. I was lucky enough to work with Ted Egan um, on his film, The Drover's Boy, and um, the Coniston massacres. And there was many massacres all over Australia of greed, corruption and disposition. Uh, the white fella pushing the Aboriginals out. Yeah. I've got a lot of time for the Aboriginals. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of history, a lot of story, a lot of photos, um, a lot of placards here at the museum. So you obviously like being here. Um, yeah, I, I'm getting old now. Um, <clears throat> the weather's starting to beat me a bit. I had uh, three months of an average of about 40 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, as you can see, my little camp here, I've got an air conditioner and I've got all the mod cons. I'm pretty lucky. Mate, we're sitting, just to give you a description, we're sitting outside in a beautiful valley and you've probably heard a bit of wind noise on, on the... Uh, the production, but I, I, I apologise for that. But we are sitting out. It's a warm day, and the, the breezes come up from time to time. But uh, it's almost like we need to do this out here to, to soak in the atmosphere. The beeping in the background you might hear. That's people walking in and out of the museum. And um, yeah, it's an amazing little spot. If you're coming through Timber Creek, make sure you come into the uh, the police museum. Say good day to Baza and uh, pick his brains on this place because it's uh, it's amazing. Well, Andy, you see that boab tree there, over there? I do. If you have a look in the photograph in there, that tree would have to be over 120 years old because the, tr- the tree in the photograph's only a little tree. Is that right? Yeah. Well, well, I'm looking at a big tree. That's a big tree now, yeah. yeah. And uh, the tree at the back here near the, uh, the truck, um, that's got a bloke, Hill. I can't quite actually see the name of... But Hill was a well-known policeman up here. There were uh, quite a lot of good policemen here, but um, a lot of blacks who were just, uh, well, they took the Aboriginal women. Um, there was no women up here at the time, and they were pretty drastic fellas. Yeah. If you look at the history, it's not good. What else can you tell us about Timber Creek? What, what should you do? Good fishing. Is there? Oh, yeah, yeah. A bloke got a metery the other day. Is that right? Yeah. Another bloke caught a fish the other month, oh, last year, actually, and... Uh, it had been tagged in New Guinea. Wow. So it's a fair distance. We've got plenty of crocodiles out there. Um, a young fella come up here to get some uh, bait. I sent him down the back little watch creek here, and uh, he'd come back an hour later, and I said, how'd you go? He said, oh, I've got three black brim for some bait, and I've lost my cast net. And I said, oh, we'll find it. He said, no, we won't find it. He said, I threw it over a freshwater crocodile, and it's gone bush. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he come back with a boat, 16 foot, and he put it, and he said, you're going to come out? And I said, I can't. So he went down, and uh, when he come back, he brought me back some fish, and I said, what you do, camp on the bank? He said, no, I, I, I laid awake all night on the boat. And I said, oh, mosquitoes? He said, no, crocodiles. He mm-hmm. said, one pulled alongside the boat, and it was uh, 
a metre each end of his 16-foot boat. So. Yeah. But that um, tape you bought on Tex Moore there, um, Tex worked all this area. They walked horses right across here. Doris Vale's about, it's only about 100k over here, but if you want to go by road, you're looking at about 400k. And he got a crocodile out in the Fitzmaurice River here, which is 28 foot long, 28. Yeah, that's And I weird. said, how did you work that out, Tex? He said, well, I had a big black fella stepping out, he said, and when he come on the land, he said, I measured him. And that's in the tape. You'll be interested in that tape, yeah. Yeah, some of the big photos that you see of, of past crocodiles that have been been captured and killed, they're absolutely monsters. They were. They were big. Um, Sweetheart, another one in there. That was over the Roper River. Um, but crocodiles never shot over in um, uh, the Fitzmaurice area. Right. In the west. Yeah, and the crocodiles were very big, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, well, that's that's great. Mate, uh, we've enjoyed our stay in Timber Creek. So if you're coming through, as I said, make sure you pop into the, the police museum, um, have a chat to Bazza, and, uh, yeah, if you've got a fishing rod, try and get that metery. <laughs> Thanks very much, Bazza. Thanks, Andy, and enjoy yourself. Ta, mate. Oh. Hey, if you enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoy talking to Bazza at Timber Creek, mate, please leave a positive review on whatever vehicle you're using to listen to this podcast. I hope to catch you next episode. Please stay tuned. Have a cracker.